All right, saints, if you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, we begin in verse 30 this evening. John, chapter 6, verse 30. What's been happening here in the sixth chapter, as you guys are well aware of, what we've seen is this. Jesus has come and initially had healed a man who was a paralytic. And in his discussions that he had with the religious leaders, he tried to show them over and over again that incredible understanding how he was equal with God in his very nature, in his power, and and in his authority. And so we began to see that. We then looked at the witness of John the Baptist. We looked at the witness of the works of of Christ, we look at the witnesses of the scriptures themselves there in that fifth chapter, and then we come to chapter six where he feeds the 5,000. Immediately we begin to see a work. Now, what had happened is this crowd had followed, and Jesus had spoken to them of the kingdom of God. He had healed, he had ministered, and so evening came, he fed them. After he fed them, they were wanting to make him king by force. And so he sends the disciples across the sea. He sends the people away. He goes to a place to pray. Then he walks back across the sea, meets his disciples, brings them to the other side. And then the crowd follows. As the crowd follows, they begin to ask those questions, you know, Hey, how did you get here? What's the deal? And Jesus lets them know, listen, you're seeking me because of an external. You come all this way for more bread. And he said, I want you to understand you're laboring this hard for physical bread, which is going to perish. You're going to be hungry again tomorrow. I fed you yesterday. You're hungry again today. But he made a statement to labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. He's speaking to them of the eternal. And so they're asking him, what must we do? What is the work of God? What is that labor that we must do? And he says, believe. Now I want you to understand a context of what's going on here. Jesus was there on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, did the miracle. He comes now to the western side. And as he comes, he's going to be working his way back up to a synagogue in Capernaum. What's happening is this, from verses 25 through 40, what Jesus is doing is he's come to the land and he's either going to be speaking to to them at that point or they're having this dialogue as they're going to Capernaum and there he will be in the synagogues. And while he's there initially now, he's speaking to the 5,000 or part of them, others that have come alongside, those that are following him either along the road or he speaks to them and then he moves along the road. And then we see in verse 41 of John chapter 6, there's a little bit of a change. 
Because in John chapter 6, verse 41, it says, Then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. So you have these religious leaders. We've talked about this before. Whenever it says the Jews, he's talking about the leaders of the Jews. He's talking about the Pharisees, the elders, those people who want to put him to death. So those are the Jews in verse 41. But verse 59 of John 6 says this. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So understand what's happening. This, this isn't just coming to the one side and having this entire dialogue over on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. He came over, he parked, got his disciples, and he's making his way up to Capernaum. Now, as he does so, they're having this dialogue. And, of course, the dialogue starts in verse 25 when they find him on the other side of the sea. Now, he's spoken to them about the eternal. And after he said to them in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. They, in verse 30, do something really intriguing and understand who's asking this question. The one who's going to ask this question are part of the 5,000 that were fed. The 5,000 men plus the women and children. They are going to be asking this. And I do believe that part of the Jews, there in verse 41, who complained about them, they were also listening in on this conversation. But they asked the question in verse 30, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? It's a great thing. Now, keep in mind that they've just been there where the Lord has fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And they're asking for a sign. You think about that. You, we just fed this multitude and now you guys are coming and you're asking for a sign. And so you have part of the 5,000, you have part of the Jews, and they're wanting to have this sign. And I, I, I love the fact that when they come to Jesus and they're asking about another sign, that he doesn't just reject them. Do you understand what Jesus does? He dialogues with them. You can be a person who is, is in the dark. You can be a person who is, is, is just wanting to have the external filled. And God still seeks to minister to them. And this is the heart. And I want you to understand that sometimes we get frustrated with people who aren't really serious. And so there are people who simply, you know, they just want to say things for things' sake, and they're not really serious about what they're doing. And some are seriously seeking. Some are not seriously seeking. Some just come to the Lord because they just simply want the physical dealt with. But there's a passage. Just jot it down because this is the heart of what we're going to see in this dialogue. And the heart is this. In Psalm 103, verse 10, it declares this. He has not dealt with us according to our sins goes on to say, nor punish us according to our iniquities. When they came and said, what sign are you going to do? Show us another sign. Feed us again. And the next day. And the next day. You know, show us a sign. I love the fact that God doesn't deal with them in their ignorance. He doesn't deal with them in their unbelief. He is gracious. 
and God just continues the dialogue. And I love the heart because this is what the Holy Spirit does with you. This is what the Holy Spirit does with me. We come to these places where where some are seeking sincerely, some are just beginning to look, but God always, always does one thing. He reveals the heart of Jesus Christ, reveals the person in his ministry as well. But they come to him and they said, what sign will you perform? Now, I want to give you two things that he's about to do. In verse 38 of John chapter 6, he says this. For I have come down from heaven. Now, that's a good work. They want to see a work. How about this? God coming down from heaven. That's a good sign. That's a good work. God could have simply stayed in heaven, let us live in our own mess. But he chose to say, I'm going to come and I'm going to wash you. And this is the heart of what God does. So first and foremost, when I say, hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to perform? Well, first of all, I've already performed one. I've come down from heaven. That's a huge thing. You should recognize that. The other is this. In John 6, 33, you want to see a work? Try this. He said, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. How's that firework? I'm going to come down from heaven, and then I'm going to give life to to the world. This is an incredible thing. We'll look at that a little bit more in just a moment, but I want you to recognize that he's going to give life to all. And this is an amazing thing. They're looking for a sign. They're looking for a work. And how about just Jesus said, I came down from heaven. That should be enough. But now that I'm here, I'm going to give life to the world. And so asking, they said, hey, you know what? What sign will you perform that we may see it, that we may believe you? What work will you do? It's interesting that so often they're wanting to have another sign and another sign and another sign. Remember when Jesus there in the Gospel of John chapter 2 went and he cleansed the temple there in verse 18. The Jews, that's the religious leaders, answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? This is a pretty good sign. I cleared out everybody out of my father's house. I told him my father's house is a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. That should be a sign. Show us something more. And isn't it interesting how what Jesus does, we're always saying, can you do a little bit more? Can you now do this? And can you add to that this? And we're always wanting more and more as if he hasn't done the greatest work. And if he's done that, he's going to know our needs. He's going to know what we need to do. But yet there's always this time where people are wanting to say, Lord, can you perform for us? Can you wow us? Can you do something in that way? And I love it how the Lord just doesn't chastise them. He he doesn't belittle them. But they're asking, they said, hey, therefore, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? In other words, just your words and what you've done is not enough. If you want this continual belief, you need to do a continual work. And then he say in verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. 
he gave them bread from heaven to eat. I want you to pay attention to this verse because this is huge now. When they're asking about the Lord and they're saying, hey, okay, what sign are you going to do? They now come back to their fathers. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. It's unique that what we begin to see is this. There are so many times where in the scriptures they reference our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. Remember the woman there at the well? There in John chapter 4 verse 20, she made this statement, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where we ought to worship. So often what happens is this, that we take what our fathers believed and our fathers taught us. We take those and literally we elevate them almost to be equal with Scripture. Like the traditions, this is how we do things always. These traditions are how we do it, but they're always looking not to the Scripture as the final authority, but they'll elevate what their fathers have said, what their fathers have done. And in other words, when you take a look at, hey, you know, look at our fathers ate the manna. They're using their fathers and say, this is a hurdle that you have to jump over. Look at what they believe. Look at what they went through. You've got to jump through this hoop as well. And it's interesting that what we begin to do is this. We look to what we've learned in the past, to what we believed in the past, to the way our parents did things or, or you know, this church did things or this teacher did things versus just what does the scripture say? Don't do things because this is the way that Calvary Chapel does things. You do things because the scriptures declare it and we as Calvary Chapel follow the scriptures. If we ever just do things because this is the way we do things, then beyond find a church that follows the scripture, go to that church. That should be always the key. The scriptures are the final authority. They are that, that baseline on which all the systems of thought and the judgments and what we do as a church corporately, the scriptures are that which declare it. They're the final authority. Not, not what our fathers believed or what this church did or what that person taught. It's the scriptures and them alone. And so I love the fact that, you know, they said, hey, listen, our fathers ate the manna. And I think it's interesting that, that one, they're looking to their fathers, what they did and how they did. It, and said, you know what? Our fathers ate manna. And understand that our fathers ate manna. Now, we know there in the book of Exodus that they would eat manna for almost 40 years. 40 years they would be eating manna. And, and I, I find it interesting that it was not just every so often in the 40 years, but it was every single day for 40 years God provided for the children of Israel to eat. And as we looked you know, earlier, that it wasn't just 5,000 men plus women and children. You're looking at 600,000 men plus women and children. A lot more. And I think what's interesting is this, that they begin to say that our fathers ate this manna. And as they partook daily, don't you 
think that maybe you should do the same thing? You fed us yesterday. You didn't seem to break a sweat. Feed us today. I think that would be a good thing. And then feed us tomorrow. We'll just keep coming back. There's a portion of Psalm 78. I want you to be aware of it. Found in verses 23 through 25. It declares this. Yet he had commanded the clouds above. And he opened the doors of heaven. Had rained down manna on them to eat. And had given them the bread of heaven. Men ate angels food. And he sent them food to the full. They're coming and they're making the statement to Jesus, hey, you know what? Um, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And what the Lord does is this, and I think this is so important that you and I begin to understand his heart towards this point of, of their wanting to coerce him, if you will, into, hey, you know what? If you are that prophet, remember back in John 6, 14, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. There in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18, he would make the statement that God is going to bring one like myself. He's going to bring this prophet. Then a prophet's going to hear from God. He's going to speak the words of God in him. You're going to hear. And, and I think it's important to realize that they were beginning to understand, Jesus, are you that prophet, the one that was prophesied that would come into the world that would speak forth the words of the Father? And if he is that prophet that was there that Moses spoke of, then, hey, just do what Moses did. Moses made sure that we had food for the 40 years that we were there in the desert. And verse 32 is, 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 is uh, just a really good answer because we begin to see this. Jesus said, Moses, surely said, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. I think it's amazing that they're saying, wow, we, we ate every single day. We ate every single day. Look at, look at how good Moses was. He said, no, it wasn't Moses that did that. It was, understand, Jesus said, Moses didn't give it to you. My father gave it to you. It wasn't, this wasn't this Moses thing. So when, when you think about when they say, oh, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, what they failed to believe and what they failed to receive is this. There's a passage in Numbers chapter 21. I want to read it to you. Don't turn there, but just, just listen as, as I, I read verse 5 to you. Because in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5, when they're journeying from Mount Hor to go around the land of Edom, the people's soul became discouraged. They make this statement in verse 5. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. They're saying there's no food. God has been supplying bread every day. And you know, no, it's not the food that we want. 
We don't like what your provision is. And here they say, oh, our fathers ate the manna. No, you don't understand. Your father said, our soul loathes this worthless bread. And so when you say our fathers ate the manna, they weren't content with just the manna. Because once they had the manna, what? Then they wanted something more. Then they wanted something more. Then they want something more. This is the problem with going to God and saying, change the outward. Because what happens is this, when you change the outward, then you still have to live with the stuff on the inward. And then you have to be redistracted again. Now I need this change. I need this change. I need to change the locale. I need a change of this. Until you do what? Until you get the inside right. Then no matter what happens on the outward, you're content. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego there in the book of Daniel? They were in the fire. In the, fire. the outside was kind of bad. And understand that they were content to be in the fire because Jesus was there with them. And as much as what was going on affected those that were on the outside, it killed the people who actually threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. It killed those, those soldiers. But it had no effect on Daniel's friends. And this is what happens when the inside, he says, there's a peace that I'm going to give. Not as the world gives. The world gives an external. The world gives a temporary. Not as the world I'm going to give you a peace. I'm going to give you a joy. It's going to be inward. It's going to come up from the inside. It's going to overwhelm you. It's going to overflow from you. And I think it's important that when you're looking for an external fix, our fathers ate manna. Yeah, they did. But then they wanted what? Then we want quail. Then we want more. And then they said, you know what? The man is good, but it had its season. Now our soul loathes this worthless bread. Now we need something more. And this is what happens when you deal with the external. This is what happens when you deal with the temporal. And I think it's important for you to understand what they're saying, what Jesus understands that they're needing. When they say, listen, you don't understand. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. <laughs> There's a whole lot more to it than that. And I think it was interesting is this is why he says, listen, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread. My father gives you the true bread. You understand he's making this huge difference. Because what happens is this is manna was not the true bread. It was angel food, yes. Don't get me wrong. It was the bread of heaven, but it wasn't the true bread. Do you understand that manna could not conquer death? Manna could feed him for the day. That was all it could do. That was all that manna could do was feed them for today. Now, I want to take you to John 6, 49. Just move ahead to verse 49 for just a couple of seconds. Read it with me, if you will, because this is key. In verse 49 of John 6, he says, Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. So much for manna. Understand that manna is not the true bread. You have to realize that what here Jesus is going to say in verse 31 through 33, he said, Our fathers ate manna. Or they said, our fathers ate man in the desert. It's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, Moses, sure, I said, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true 
bread from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, true bread gives true life. And manna gave just a daily sustenance. Jesus is going to give eternal life. Do you understand the difference between, they want something temporal. You know, I got something much better than that. You want something to feed you for today, and I want to give you something that will bless you for eternity. And you just want a temporal blessing. A momentary blessing is all you want. And so keep in mind here that manna could never conquer death. The other thing that we see that manna isn't the true bread is this. That manna was given in the wilderness only to the nation of Israel. There were other people in the wilderness. There were other groups of people there in the wilderness. And amazingly, they didn't get manna. It only went around the camp of Israel. Only that. Do you realize how limited this manna was? The manna was only for the children of Israel. But I want you to understand what this true bread is. Notice what Jesus says there in verse 32 and 33. My father gives you the true bread from heaven in 32 and 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You understand? Manna, Israel. The true bread, the world. Do you understand how... The difference is what they're looking at. We want something temporal. And, and, and here, what they're saying is just, just deal with us. We'll conquer Rome. And what Jesus says this, I want Rome too. I want those in the household of Caesar. I'm going to send Paul there eventually. We're going to get some. But I want Rome too. I want the world. And this is what happens. They're limited in their scope thinking it has to be about me, and it has to be about now. It has to be about this temporal. And God says, oh, it's not just about you. It's about the world. And what I'm doing in you is not a temporal thing. It's an eternal thing so that you can affect the world and they can be part of this ministry that I want to do. I want to give them life. And I think it's so wonderful to see here that the, this is where Jesus says, this is true bread. This is the true manna. It's where it goes beyond your temporal, beyond just you. And so what we recognize is this, that as they were saying, look at what Moses did. And I love what happens. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, I want to read to you just the first couple of verses, verses 1 through 6 in this. We covered this when we went through the book of Hebrews, but I want to re-remind you of it here. But it says this in Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Look to him who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. You understand? Moses is great. 
But think about this. Moses was created. Jesus was not. Moses was temporal. Jesus was not. And so as Moses was faithful in his house, true, I I agree wholeheartedly, but we recognize here that this one Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Now what Moses says, it goes on to say, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses was indeed faithful in the house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which be spoken afterwards. Moses was a shadow, a type. His voice and his ministry were pointers, if you will, to Christ. That's what he was. He was a servant for a testimony of those things which be spoken afterwards. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. They're looking to say, but Moses, but Moses. Understand, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is of more glory. Yet they're looking at their fathers. They're looking at Moses. They're saying, this is what Moses did. Our fathers ate the manna. And Jesus, Moses didn't give you the bread. My father gave you the bread. And you don't understand of what this bread is. Jesus made this statement, he says, at the end of verse 32, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, the real source is the father. And that's exactly what we've been learning here. There in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, hey, I'm going to give you living water. Well, well, give me that water. I don't have to come to to, to draw anymore. No, 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 it's not that. It's living water. It's going to be internal. It's going to be eternal And here he says, I'm going to give you the the true bread. It's me. It's eternal. And and I find it interesting that they always revert back to the temporal. And what we see is this. In verse 34, when Jesus, after verse 33, said, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. It's interesting that they want Jesus just for the benefits. And to be honest with you, there's a lot of Christians in America that just want Jesus for the benefits. What can I get from you? What can I do? How can, you know, this help my work? How can this help that? And and we're always looking to say, you know, I want something temporal and, 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 and I want it so that I don't have to do the labors that I think I can get away with now. Remember the, the woman at the well. Let me read to you from John chapter 4, verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. They think the spiritual is going to quench the physical. No, you'll still have the physical. It's separate, two different things. But what they're wanting is they said, Listen, you don't understand. This bread of God, he who comes down from heaven, he gives life to the world They're now saying, Lord, give us this bread always. It's interesting that what they're wanting is they're saying, okay, you you have to 
feed me now and feed me tomorrow and feed me there. And Jesus now in verse 35 makes this statement, the very first of the I am statements. He says this, I am the bread of life. Give us this bread. I'm already here. <laughs> Do you understand? Give us this bread always. I'm not going anywhere. Give us this bread. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. It's incredible to see here what the Lord is saying. He says, I am here. Receive me. I'm this bread. But verse 36 puts a quash on, on our hope for what they're seeing. Because in verse 36, Jesus says, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. It's so amazing that what Jesus says is, I am the bread of life, and yet you truly haven't seen me as the bread of life. I want to take you to just a... a a thought process, if you would. You guys know what bread is, right? You know what bread is? Do you understand that we do not grow bread? There's not a bread tree. There's not a bread plant. There just isn't. We don't grow bread. What happens is this. We grow grain. And, and so what happens is we, we grow the grain. And, and then what we do is this. We cut down the stalks. We crush the grain, we pulverize the grain, and then we put the grain into a fire. Then we have bread. And I want you to understand that what we recognize is this, that when you begin to see all of this, that, that we have the true bread from heaven. Jesus grew up among us. And we cut him down. And then his body was beaten, broken. And then he went through the fire of the wrath of a holy God to pay the penalty of our sins. That wrath of God was placed upon him there on the cross as he paid in full the price of our sins. And understand this. He went through the fire of God's holy wrath. And so Jesus is the true bread from heaven. You got to understand that we're not just talking about a grain here. We're talking about bread, the process in which bread is made. And Jesus is saying, I am that true bread. I grew up among you. I was cut down. I was crushed and beaten. I went through the fire of God's wrath for your sin. I did this for you. I came to heaven for you. I was cut down for you. I allowed myself to be beaten for you. I went through the fire of God's wrath for you. I'm the bread. Partake of me. It's absolutely amazing to see here that his life and his work are our life. I find it interesting that no matter what culture you go to, there's always a form of bread. And, and the amazing thing is whether you have a poor person or a rich person, it's something that we eat just about all the time. I mean, there's some foods I eat periodically. I would like them more often, but you're always eating bread of some kind. 
That is, is a necessary. We need the grains. We need the grains in our body. And what we begin to see is this, is Jesus, I'm that bread. Everyone can partake of me. I've came for the world. And as we look to this, I think it's important that what Jesus is saying here in verse 35, he very distinctly, when he said, give us this bread, he said, I am the bread of life. I'm that bread of eternal life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. You'll, you'll be spiritually satisfied. You're going to be in a right relationship with God. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Now understand, he's pointing out two things. He's saying coming and believing. There, there, there's two separate distinct things that he's referring to. Understand that when it comes to coming to the Lord, coming is very an easy thing. When, when, when someone is in one room and you say, come here, then you do what? Well, you leave one place and you go to another place. That's all coming is. You leave where you were, you come to Jesus. And that's, it's important. You have to leave a spot and come to him. He's the destination. Come to him. But when you come to him, then you have to believe in him. You have to receive him. You've got to understand that this is the one that I've been looking for. This is one that I'm looking to. And, and now I set my faith upon you and your ministry, what you have done. It's important to recognize that this is what happens. Now, there are many who come to the point that say, I believe in Jesus. I don't know how many times I've talked to people and I've asked them, you know, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, I believe in Jesus. I absolutely believe in Jesus. Then I'll ask them this other question. Do you believe that you are saved and that you have eternal life? And they go, eh, that's a little pompous. I don't know about that one. I believe in Jesus, but I can't believe that, that I'm saved. I can't believe that I have eternal life. And, and this is what's interesting when, when it comes to it. In verse 40, it makes this statement. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Assurance. And it's interesting. There's a lot of people say, I believe in Jesus. And you ask if they're saved. You ask if they know that they have everlasting life. They begin to doubt. You cannot doubt if you believe as Jesus says to believe in him. You just can't doubt. And if you believe in Jesus, as he says, there is no doubt in your heart. There can't be doubt in your heart. And so we begin to see that these two statements are hand in hand. You come and you believe. And when you believe, you have this assurance. And, and I think it's so important to recognize what this assurance does. Because people, they so often believe that their salvation hinges upon the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. Do you realize that that's not what your salvation hinges upon? Your salvation hinges upon one thing, Jesus Christ on the cross. That's it. 
He went to the cross. He died. He said it is finished. And we're looking at us and thinking, well, I'm not here yet or I'm not there yet. And we're looking at what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. And keep in mind that a lot of times what happens is the Holy Spirit is dealing with root issues. that You're not seeing the surface stuff yet. But you trust the Holy Spirit is in me because Jesus said, I'm giving you a gift. I'm, I'm dying, I'm going to heaven, and when I go, I'm going to give you another helper that he may be with you always. And he is with you and will be in you. And as we see in Acts, he'll come upon us. And this is the beauty of the work of the Holy Spirit. But keep in mind that my salvation, your salvation, the world's salvation does not, is not based on the evidences of the Holy Spirit working in them. I mean, those things will come in time. Granted, they, they just will naturally blossom out of you. But your salvation hinges totally on Christ. And this is why people doubt. I believe in Jesus, but I'm not seeing what he's done. No, no, no. Just believe in Jesus. That's it, period. That's what we do. I quoted earlier from Numbers chapter 21. I read verse 5. I want to read to you verses 7 through um, Six through nine, just to keep you in context, but declares this. After the people said, our soul loathes this worthless bread in Numbers 21, five, verse six said, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. And therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you and pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent set on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks, that's just it, when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it upon a pole, and it was so that if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And this is the key. I want you to see verse 40 back in our text because in John 6, 40, it makes a statement, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. You see him, you come to him. When you come to him, you believe, and you believe that it's only your work and your work alone that gives me this eternal life. And as we see this, and I love what Jesus does, because in verse 36, after he says, he who believes in me shall never thirst, he says, but yet I said to you that you've seen me and yet you do not believe. You, you, you've been here, I fed you, and you're still only looking for the temporal. You're still only looking for the physical. And you don't understand that I've come to give you eternal life, not temporary sustenance for the day. I can do that, but that's not my goal. Because if I give you the sustenance, the temporary for the day, you're not going to be looking for me for the eternal. And eventually this temporary sustenance for the day, you're going to loathe that too. But if I give you the eternal, if you have the greatest need filled to overflowing in you, then you're not going to worry about the temporal things. And so when Jesus said in verse 36, I said to you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. And in 37, Jesus does something amazing. 
He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then he says, and the one who comes to me will by no means be cast out. I want you to understand that there is a debate among good Christians. Not bad Christians, good Christians. Debate is among the Calvinistic view and the Arminianist view. And one says, God chooses you. And Arminianist says, no, you choose God. And I want you to understand that when Jesus, in verse 37, he says, all right, let's put the two up and let's compare And what we see is this. Jesus says, Calvinism versus Arminianism. And the winner is Jesus. The winner is Jesus. You have to understand that what we see is both are true. Both are what we understand. Because when Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The Father from the foundation of the world has chosen all that he would give to his son. He's chosen He predestined, and God has chosen all who would come to the Son. But here's the question. How do I know if God chose me? Let me give you the answer. If you have a heart to choose God. (laughs) If you have a heart to choose God, understand, that can't have been your heart. But you have to have this heart, and you choose God. It was an amazing thing that the very first thing that I knew, someone had been preaching, and they, they preached a message and said, listen, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to come forward and you can receive Christ. Like, I get to choose? Yes, you get to come forward and receive Christ. I'm, like, I'm going to come. I'm going to come. I'm going to choose Jesus. And, and, and it's all I wanted, but it's all I knew. But if he would have stood up there and said, you know what? God has chose some of you in this room. Others, he has not. Do you know what would have been in my mind? I couldn't have chose me. I know who I am. And he didn't. He didn't say God chose some, God didn't choose others. He said, God loves you. Jesus Christ came and died for you. Anyone who wants, come. And it's an amazing thing that what we begin to see here is there's this competition among good Christians. Who is right? And the answer is, they both are. And the winner is Jesus. Because we see here, understand the key to verse 37, and this is so important. It says, the Father gives me. Do you understand? It isn't so much the Father choosing us, but he gives us to the Son. And it isn't so much as us coming, but us choosing him. And he says, the Father gives me. Do you understand the key to the argument of Calvinism and Arminianism is Jesus. The Father has given us to the Son, and we choose the Son. Jesus is the winner. All the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, he says, you're eternal. Do you understand? That if you think you're coming to Christ and it's a maybe thing, 
Eventually, when you come to Christ, he'll say, listen, you were predestined from eternity and you are saved for eternity. It's always been. It's been sealed. It's one of those things. I love it how there's a saying that says this. On one side of the door, it says, all who wish to enter may. You go, I want to go through. And then you walk through the door and you turn around, you look at the other side, it says chosen from the foundation of the world. You've always been chosen to come through, but on this side, we don't know who's chosen. We don't know who's not. We don't know who the Father has given to the Son. All we know on this side is what? If you want to come, Jesus says this, I will by no means cast out. This is a beautiful understanding. And so the, the, the sad thing is when it comes to this argument that they really miss, it's all about Jesus. In the volume of the book, it is written of him. The Father gives to him, and we choose him. We come to him. And this is so important to recognize that when we see here, the Father gives to the Son, it's true. All who come, who choose the Son, is true. Both are true. And, and what happens is this, is we get in this argument, and so often we forget to just tell people, you know what, God says you can choose. And after they choose, you can say, you've always been chosen by God. But it's a beautiful truth that we can begin to see. And so I want you to understand that when it comes to Calvinism, versus Arminianism, let me just change it to Jesus. Don't, don't put an ism. Don't, don't put yourself in a camp. I'm in this camp and you're in that. No, it's just, it's about Jesus. The Father so loves the Son, he says, these I'm, I'm giving to you. And anyone who says, I want to choose him, in time you're going to realize, God had already chosen you. This was preordained. It was already done. And now he says this in verse 38, and this is so important because it comes right on the tail of all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. He says this for 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Eventually, when Jesus says this, I and the Father are one. We have the same mind, we have the same power, we have the same authority, we have the same nature, all that. But then Jesus makes this amazing prayer. Father, that they may be one with me as I am with you. Do you understand that eventually what happens is this, that we're going to not do our will, but we're going to do the will of him who sent us, who placed us here. When you come to Christ, guess whose will you're doing? You're not doing your own. You're doing the will of him who called us and wanted to give us to the son. And this is beautiful. And I love it because an our thought is like, well, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. And Jesus did a lot. But he recognized everything that I'm doing, I'm not doing it my own power. I'm not doing it my own understanding. Everything the father desires, I become an instrument to do his will. And this is what we do. Even when we come to Christ, we are an instrument to do the will of the father. And verse 38 nails this. And I love the heart of what it is because he said, I come down from heaven. And note this, he's telling him once again, I've come from eternity. 
not to do what I want to do, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this, verse 39, is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up at the last day. He said, you have to understand that in me, you are eternally secure. And this is why when I ask people, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, I do. I do believe in Jesus. So you believe that you are saved and you have eternal life. Well, I don't know about that. Do you understand? If you believe in Jesus, you do believe that you are saved. You do believe that you have eternal life. Because the will of the Father is this. And Jesus has come as God to do that will that everyone... He says, the Father has given him, he should lose nothing. That's zero, nada, zip, zilch, nothing. He loses nothing. Everyone who comes, he says, you're mine, and I've got you. Eternal security. And then he says this, and this is the will of him who sent me. Now, amazingly, there's two separate things that are said here. Verse 39, the will of the Father who sent me. In verse 40, this is the will of him who sent me. So you have two distinct things. In verse 39, all the Father has given me, I should lose nothing. And then he says this in verse 40, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. And now what happens is this. There's an addendum. It's seeing and believing that I've put my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I've not put my faith on in how I determine my own maturity in Christ. I'm not putting my faith in how I think that I've measured up. I'm not putting my faith in that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. I'm putting my faith simply in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you have to understand verse 40, and this is so key. This is the will of of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son, again, like looking at that bronze serpent that Moses set upon the standard. You look at it and you're going to live. Everyone who sees the sun, you're looking at him as that source of life and you believe in him. You're seeing and you're putting your faith, your trust in this person and his work alone. Nothing else. Not not me, not what the Spirit's doing in me, but only in Christ, only what he's done. And the beautiful thing is this, that when I blow it, guess what? I can still tell you that I am saved and I have everlasting life. Do you understand that you could go to the point, and I I truly believe this, that you, like me, could go to a point where someone could say, do you know Jesus? And you could say, I don't know him. You could simply deny him. Do you believe that you could actually deny Jesus in the presence of others? And the Lord would still say, yeah, you're mine. Well, let's take it another step. Let's just not say that you denied him once. Let's just say that someone else says, I think you know Jesus. And you go, oh, no, I do not know the man. 
Let's say you denied him twice. Do you think that's too much for God to bring you back? Ah, now you've done it once. Oh, I'm pretty gracious. Second time. No, let's just try a third. Do you think if anyone denied the Lord three times, and let's just say that right after you denied him the third time, vehemently swearing that a rooster crowed, who could deny the Lord three times and yet God would say, Peter, oh, Peter, when you've returned, you're going to stumble, but when you've returned, strengthen your brothers. You're going to be a leader. <laughs> now you would think that it would be like, make me one of your hired servants. Make me a doorkeeper. Make me the guy that, that, that washes the rest of the disciples' feet. Peter became a leader. Do you understand the grace of God? That there is nothing that you can do that would prevent Jesus Christ from saying, you have everlasting life. You can stumble once. You can stumble twice. You can stumble daily. But guess what? You don't stay down. You, you understand what you've done. You've repented. You confess your sins. You get back up and you're walking in grace. And understand that to our own master, to our own master, we will stand or fall, but he is able to make us stand. This is a beautiful thing about scripture, and I want you to understand that he makes this statement. He says, if you see the son and believe in him, you have everlasting life, and I will raise you up on the last day. You are mine you are mine. That's just it. There's nothing else. And we come to this understanding saying, wow, they wanted something that was so temporal. Just feed me for today. And he says, no, I want to take you past life, past breathing, past all of this in this world. And I want to bring you to heaven for eternity. And isn't it amazing they wanted something so menial, so little, so insignificant. And Jesus said, I've come to give you so much more. Do you understand? I came down from heaven not to give you just food for the day. I came down from heaven to give you eternal life. And not just you, but I came down from heaven to give the world eternal life. You're so focused on manna. You're so focused on this bread. You're so focused on your stomach. You're missing the big picture. And I think for us, be careful, Christian. It's a great word for us that you don't get and I don't get so focused on the temporal, so focused on, on what we think we're doing and how well we think we're doing or how bad we think we're doing. And we focus on what? worshiping Jesus Christ because the work is done. When we come to that, our, our life becomes a celebration of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And I'm not so worried about the day-to-day, -day. I made a mistake here, I made a mistake, you know. I'm telling you, if, if, if there are Christians who think, if I deny the Lord, I'm gone. I'm glad that God put in the passage with Peter. Again, and again and again he denied three times. And God says, you're mine. You're mine. Don't worry, Satan is, he wants to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. You're mine. All of the Father gave me. You come to me. You've seen me. You believe in me. I haven't lost you, Peter. 
And know this, you can put your name there. I have not lost you. Put your name in there. I will never lose you. Put your name in there. You believe in Jesus Christ, believe in his work. If you say, I believe in Jesus, you must understand that that inference says, I believe that I am saved and I will eternally be saved and I'm in his hands and I will not be lost. No matter what. No matter what. It's a beautiful thing to understand, a beautiful thing to grasp. When we look to, it's about him, not about us. And when we rest on what he says. So Christian, look at the eternal, look at what he's done, and then worship him accordingly. And the response is what? Response in worship, response in serving, response in honoring, response in doing the things that, that you realize, I want to do the Father's will, not mine. I want to see him glorified, not me. This is my heart now because my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. I want to glorify God in my body and my spirit, which is his because he's purchased me. Let that be our prayer. Let that be our worship unto him. Amen. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for this word. You speak volumes, volumes, Lord, not just to the people of your day, but you speak volumes to us today volumes, Lord. Teach us, teach us what it is to see you and believe in you and receive your finished work and to walk in that light and only in that light. Oh, that we could come to that understanding and and worship and serve freely in love, not in the law. That it wouldn't become a duty, it's simply a desire that changes everything of the way we do things. So Jesus, we are so thankful that we're not asking just to say, do these fixes for today. You fixed the eternal and that's, we want to worship you for that. And, and we know, you, you know what we have needed before we ask. You, you know our needs, you're going to provide for those needs. But the issue is, is we know our biggest need is met, and it's done by you, Jesus. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you. Thank you so much for coming down from heaven. Thank you so much for going to the cross. Thank you so much for shedding your blood, allowing your body to be broken, going through that fire of the wrath of God for our sin. You've become the true bread of heaven that which gives life to the world. We're so grateful that you included us. (laughs) So grateful, Lord. Teach us to walk in that truth through your spirit, through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. amen.